0: listener production Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine, and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times, and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. I hear many women talk about a lack of confidence, but some women are born with a quiet confidence that propels them to success. My next guest has worked from an early age with some of the most compelling, powerful men in the country, and is now a CEO in her own right. She's also one of the most naturally confident women I know. Karina Chapman has held positions at News Corp under Rupert Murdoch, worked for Kerry Packer at nine, and in senior roles in the offices of Joe Hockey and Tony Abbott. Today, Karina is the Deputy Chair and CEO of the Australian Communications and Media Authority. Karina, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank you. I've just listed some quite big names. Do you
1: have a favourite ex-boss? No. I mean, they're all... That would be cruel. It would be cruel to name one, and they're all so different. So they've all got strengths, and they all had weaknesses, but they all had big personalities. There's no doubt about that. So... At a personal level, you get on with some really well and not with others, and some are nightmares. So that's a cruel question. You can't say who's, who's my favourite. But I find it fascinating because
0: you've really worked with some of the biggest names in the country. What do you think attracts
1: you to them or them to you? I, I don't know that they were ever attracted to me personally for me or me to them personally. It was really a matter of the jobs. I was attracted to working in the media. They were the big names in the media. And in politics, and in politics, I like working for people that are going to make a difference. They're passionate about what they do, and certainly all of those bosses fit in that category. Now, some of them it was passionate about money, and some of it was passionate about leading the country. But it's that passion and drive, which is what they had in common. And I think, really, in many ways, it was luck. It was really that I followed a path of of working in the media and landed with the biggest. Names in the media and then a few big names in politics. Many people would be terrified
0: about working for particularly Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Packer. Some people would be terrified by working for Tony Abbott. Do you have an innate sense of confidence that carries you through those
1: times or did you feel terrified at times? I think it's both. I certainly felt terrified at times. I'd never really had enough interaction with Rupert Murdoch. I was too far removed from him to ever be really terrified. Kerry Packer, I was, I was terrified of regularly. Um, he was a very terrifying figure, but also a very charismatic figure. But I think that question of confidence is interesting. I think the point is, is I've always been confident because I've always known my subject matter. I felt confident in my ability to, to assist leaders, and that's the trick. But I mean, if you if you have information or you have knowledge that your leader does not then you are always in a position of power. You underestimate the fact that the leaders of organisations and leaders of groups of people do not know everything. They need advice. They need help. And a good leader surrounds themselves by having people that have got knowledge. So I always felt reasonably comfortable in my knowledge on the subject matter. I mean, occasionally I've bluffed it, but you've got to bluff it with a certain amount of confidence. That's probably the best way of putting it. Confidence is something
0: I think I talk about almost every single day, which has made me think about it a lot. And what does confident mean? Is it someone who can speak up in a meeting? Is it somebody who can make decisions? Would you describe yourself as confident? And was there a period in your career where you weren't?
1: Yes, well, this is the nub of the issue, and this is something which is often quite particular to women, and it's the fear of failure. It's not just common to women. Confidence is something which leaders really need to instill in their people. It's a learnt skill. You become confident because those people around you or those people above you give you reason to feel confident. But women particularly, it's that, where there's a term for it, which you'll remind me what it is, that constant fear of fail. Someone is going to find me out. Imposter. The imposter syndrome. It is rare in men, I think, it's my theory. I mean, the, the classic example of the person who I think had real imposter syndrome and suffered badly from it as a leader was... David Leckie, it was his strength and his weakness. He had terrible imposter syndrome. He said he was driven by fear of failure. Now, that's bad. But if you're overconfident, then you become egotistical, which is where you don't want to be. I mean, I think you learn it, but in a way, you've just got to bluff your way through it most of the time. I mean, a lot of the time people say, well, fake it till you make it to some extent. But you've got to have a basis behind which you do fake it till you make it.
0: But I think there are some people that have a natural level of confidence and that yes. exists in men and women. And I've known you a long time. You have a natural level of confidence. It'd be rarely that you're in a situation where you don't feel like you can manage it.
1: Yes, but I think I've also got a, a, a real level of naivety. I mean, I often look <laughs> back at experiences that I've had and I thought, this applies in many ways. If you, if you really knew what was happening there, well, then you should have been more terrified and you, should have, you shouldn't have had the confidence you have. But that is also a bad thing because you also look back on experiences and think, I should never have got myself into that situation or I should have tried to change things more. I think that's partly my generation, though, in the sense that I think that fortunately people, particularly women, are far more aware now of the situations they're in, particularly in the workplace, but I'm not sure I always have been. I think I've I've often just blithely just motored along and <laughs> it's, and sometimes I think the confidence just really naivety as much as anything else. <laughs> oh, that's very helpful to know. <laughs> it's not really. I'm sorry. Probably won't no, it is. It is. It's a bit like you've got to compartmentalise your life. I mean, you can't, if you actually worry about everything that's happening, then you are. You're going to terrify yourself into... Oh, I would never have started a business if I knew what I know now. No, that's right. (laughs) It's a certain amount of bluffing your way through Well, not bluffing your way through it because I don't think that's right and I rarely bluff my way through it. I've got very few experiences where I can think I've actually bluffed my way through something. The classic one was when a former Prime Minister asked me in a meeting at the lodge about the various channels on a Foxtel basic subscription and I listed off a whole lot of things and then we got in the car afterwards and my boss said, I'm glad you knew the answer to that question because I certainly didn't. And I said, well, I don't actually have a Foxtel subscription. I think that was right, but I think it's pretty good. It was right five years ago. It's the only time I've really thought mm, that could have gone horribly wrong. But I think you, you, you can overanalyze. You can overanalyze things far too much. You've got to have fun. You've got to enjoy what you're doing. And if it starts to eat away at you, then you're on the wrong track. What sort of leader do you admire? Well, it, it's a it's a cliche to answer the question. It's a leader that instills a cooperative vision for whoever they're leading. Now it sounds easy, but there's very few leaders that I think do that effectively. Mm. In the and, and it's mostly communication. Mm. Interestingly, you know, in a commercial company. It's not just about saying, well, we need to make money, we need to sell more widgets. You know, Why are people turning up to work every day? Why should they be dedicated to the job? What is it about drives them forward? What is it about them that makes them want to work for that company? Now, it's it's about selling a vision and a direction, everything from what's happening next week, what's happening next month, what's happening next year, and involving the people in the process and letting them know what it is that's one element i mean there's, there's there's many i mean i think openness and honesty the leader that's found to be dishonest and not tell the truth is not going to be trusted by their people and that's a that's a complete disaster who have you seen do that well given that you've worked for some pretty big leaders um the media leaders i've worked for have been largely work it out as they go along fly by night. I don't think they communicated that well in the sense of instilling a vision and and communicating it. Even Um, though they worked in media? Even though they worked in media. I mean, it's not, this is not because of who's running this podcast, but, you know, in many ways, I think Grant Blackley at Southern Cross, when he was actually, when, when he was working through management of new businesses for an old traditional media that needed to start up, new revenue streams, the manner in which he did that by including middle and higher level management in the company and actually work taking them through workshops and what the vision is and, and actually giving them ownership of how that would work, which led to the podcasting business. That's how it happened. You've it, spoken about that a lot. It was one of the projects that came out of that and it became a you know what they call, I, I think, a tiger team, where you put a group of people who've got different expertise onto the job Give them a short period of time, come back and tell us how you could do it. That is that is involving your people in where you're going, not being a dictator from the top and saying, "Well, this is what the board thinks and this is what the most senior managers think. This is what you will do." That command and command managerial skill, I just I don't understand how it works. I mean, I worked at Woolworths briefly and unfortunately, and I've actually dropped it off my CV, but. Um, You know, that's a classic case of everything is dictated from the top. That's a very difficult place to work. I mean, it's not leadership. One form of leadership that's been very fashionable in the
0: past Mm. is charismatic leadership, where the leader is just, dominates a room, walks in, and it can be political, it can be media, it can be corporate. You don't see much of it anymore. Uh, In fact, the one that I always quote is David Kinjall, who's a former Mm. CEO of Nine, and to Those of you who don't follow media as closely, he's famous for punching James Packer in a street in Bondi. He was the best example I ever saw of a charismatic leader. Have you ever worked with someone like that? And how
1: do you think that measures up as a leadership style? Well, I've worked with David, and he's definitely a charismatic leader. There's no doubt about that. But, I mean, I think it works particularly for the people that have a lot of dealings with them. But the problem is, in any company, the charismatic leader is not it doesn't have a day-to-day interaction with the person on the on on the on the work floor. Uh, and the problem is is that it doesn't necessarily filter down. And a charismatic leader, and I'm not necessarily saying this is David, but a charismatic leader is often always very inconsistent. And that is one of the real problems. It's always been one of the problems I have with management style, is I think consistency is one of the most important things for all staff. If you're charismatic, you've got to accompany it with a lot of other things. I mean, I now think that in many ways, strength to leadership is about planning and mapping out exactly what you're going to do involving your staff with it. And that might be partly because I'm working for the public service now and I've seen it and how important it is, how important it is that your people understand the processes. But it would depend on the business. If you're doing widgets, if you're selling widgets and you're Woolworths and you're selling um, soap powder, you know, maybe it doesn't matter as much, but... Sure, everybody when they hear their charismatic leader delivering the annual results, or when they maybe they come on the floor and, and talk to them, you're inspired. But for most people that are running normal lives, who, you know, have got children to put to school, they've got mortgages to pay, they just want to enjoy their everyday life and and understand what they're doing and, and enjoy it and be inspired by it, you need to have consistency and understanding of where the company's going. And I think that's also a reflection of
0: post-pandemic where there's been a lot of uncertainty um, and operating businesses virtually. There's a whole other range of challenges in inspiring a team if you're doing it
1: remotely. What sort of leader do you think you are and have you given it much thought? No, I don't give it much thought, um, which I think is, is, is a product of my generation. I'm that age where I just don't think that we weren't raised to think that way. There wasn't the facility for us to think that way, so I don't think I ever have. I try and be a very inclusive, open door leader. I mean, my main, particularly in this role, is is emphasising to people all the time, please, if you want to talk about anything, any sort of question, please come and talk to me. Come and consult me. I've got time. I will make always make time for you. Trying to be consistent, trying to instil that confidence, which we were talking about, which is all about feedback. We're always in a hurry. Everyone's in a hurry. And taking the time to to ensure that people understand the value that they're bringing, but also offering to guide people if there's an area that they don't feel confident or they don't feel they know as much, to try and guide them without um, without being dictatorial. But it is tricky. It's harder, the, the higher I guess, the higher the leadership it is because I've always thought that the best way to learn and be better at something is to get honest feedback from people about what you could do better. Well, it's really hard to get because no one tells you the truth. Not as the boss, do they? No, they don't. And no. it's really annoying. You know, if and like, you, you never want, tell the boss. You want to sort of truth. overhear them or something. Um, it's very hard to get honest feedback, which to me, feedback is the way that leaders learn from their people when it should go the other way. But, you know, and I say sometimes something to someone, I say, well, contradict me. And that's interesting. In our organisation, it's something that's something we are trying to do, which is hard. How do you get people to challenge you and to feel confident enough to say, no, I think we could do this a different way, or no, there's a better way to do it. And you can only do that gradually over time by instilling confidence in them and constantly asking them, how could we do that better? How could we do that differently? Do you think that's the right way to do things? Ask them, don't tell them. There's always a temptation to tell them because you're in a hurry. The longer you've been in a job, the more you know the answer. Correct, and you think you know the answer. Yeah.
0: I've worked for bosses that think they are incredible people leaders. They'll tell you they're great people leaders. And you know what their team thinks of them. So it's very difficult, I think, as a leader, to have much of a sense of what
1: your own people think of you. And I don't know how you uncover that. No, you have to try and read the hidden signals. It's quite hard. And try and find out some people that will... You might find a person who could would dare to be honest, but it's pretty hard. Do you think it really matters? Um, I think it matters to the extent that um, it can give you some ideas of how you can improve the way you're managing them. I don't think it matters what they think of you. Well, I think it does. If If they think that you're a tyrant, well, then you're clearly doing something wrong. If they don't want to go down to the pub and have a drink with you, then that's fine. It might be easier if they're prepared to go down to the pub and have a drink with you, but they don't have to like you but if they dislike you, then there's a problem. But yes, feedback definitely matters. You would definitely do a better job if someone constructively says to you, look, you don't listen enough or you're expecting too much of us. So you those type of things. And the more senior the person is, the more they should they should do it. But you do have to push them. You worked closely with both Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey. Joe Hockey everyone
0: likes. Mm you know, wouldn't be a surprise, you know, wouldn't matter. Well, charismatic
1: leader, I think you could say. I was going to say. Oh, there's no
0: doubt about that. Charismatic leader. Yeah, I was going to say, he, yes. would, he would fall into that category. Yes.
1: He walks into a room and he's a sort of the person yeah. you want to have a chat to. Uh, and incredibly smart. He's got a lot, yes, a lot going for him as a leader.
0: Um, I saw him in the back of a cafe in Canberra at 6am the other week. And I was in, almost inclined to go and say hello because he's mm. that charismatic leader. But mm. then, you you know, those people often like to be left alone if mm. they're in a cafe at 6 o'clock in the morning. Um Tony Abbott is a fascinating character mm. because the public perception of him is quite different to the one that you would know as a private individual. But he had charisma and he also had an incredible capacity. This is what I think. You you tell me, correct me if I'm wrong. Incredible capacity not care
1: as much about people who didn't like him. Is that fair to say? I think that's right. He's a, he's a very complex character. You know, there's a lot of politicians that are good to work for, and I'm um, and I'm um, you know, there are many that are not. But the one thing that certainly I experienced with Tony Abbott and everybody I know who, who has come across him is just how generous and gentlemanly and polite he is. It's actually really quite remarkable. I mean, most politicians get like you get pretty testy, it's pretty hard not to be on the end of you know a real tirade or vitriol from not vitriol, but. You know, a real download from a politician. I mean, ironically, Joe Hockey was like that. You know, very, very passionate and absolutely go crazy, but never at you personally. Which was, for me, it's fine. I don't mind someone can yell and scream as long as it's not directed at me. But Tony yeah, was, you know, the perfect gentleman. Tony is a, is a is a passion, a passionate leader. You know, he believes in what he believes in, and he thinks, you know, that's what he's there for, and that is his, that is his job. And if you don't fit within that, well, then he's not overly concerned. But his leadership style was interesting when I was there, and I think it got even more so, obviously, when he was Prime Minister because I didn't work for him when he was Prime Minister, is that really the leadership was driven by his office as opposed to him. It's hard to know what was happening behind closed doors, but in the sense of his direction, but a large amount of the leadership that I saw was coming from Peter Credlin really rather than him. Which is incredibly interesting. You, mm.
0: but, I, but then that's about delegation too. That's right. Um, being prepared to delegate. Correct. And um, clearly he was good at that. Can we talk about egos? Yes. Um, Love talking about egos. Because you would have seen a lot. Do you think there's still a place in the workplace for the big ego or have we started to eradicate
1: egos as they've become less fashionable? Well, I think if if you're talking about ego as being the trait of being Overly self-confident and inability to take advice, always thinking that you're in the right, then no, I don't. And I don't think it ever has. But I think there's a lot of confusion between self-confidence and ego. E- ego in that in that negative sense definitely has no place. But you've got to have a certain amount of self-confidence, and that's what we were talking about to get your way through. And if you don't, well then in some ways you'll be crushed. But um This is a bit of a tangent, but it's very interesting. Quite a bit's been written about this, about people, particularly sports people, and this is where it gets even more interesting, is that can you really be an absolute champion if you don't have a huge ego? And it's questionable, but there's a lot of technique that's been developed around around the traps around the world recently, which I think is a, a good practice where people develop what's called an alter ego. And it works particularly in sport, but it also works in business where you are you and you separate that overly confident but protected. I think that's the point. An ego is a protection. It's protecting you against how you can be battered when you're out there on the top on your own. That's why sports people need it. But it's quite separate to you. And some people give their ego, their alter ego, a different name. And you leave your alter ego when you walk in the front door at home and when with your family and you are a different person. And so it leads you to the point where you wonder with many of the uh, leaders that you see today with huge egos, I'm not sure it's really them. They may not really have that incredibly self-obsessed actual view of themselves. It could well just be put on. But if it manifests itself in that egotistical way that we think of in the old-fashioned type of ego, which is unable to take advice, always think you're in the right, that sort of self-obsessed. Well, that's, there's, there's no place for that in any. But I haven't really come across many leaders like that. I mean, Kerry Packer was certainly not egotistical. I mean, he was very much, he usually thought, he, well, he usually was the smartest person in the room which helped him, but I think he was always willing to listen to other people and take advice from other people. It was just he was a very hard taskmaster. Task if we bring it back to a more attainable version of ego, you can
0: see it in yourself at times, can't you, professionally? Like you can feel your ego being attacked and identifying the difference between something that's really just your ego and parking it and then going, actually, if I, if I can put that to one side and deal with this for what it is, that that takes a degree of self-awareness, and I think, uh, maturity, you know, to, to kind of recognize the difference between something that's an attack on your ego and something that actually, if you if you ignore that, you can handle the problem or the challenge or the situation in a much more effective way. Do you think you've got to that stage in your career where you can delineate between an attack on your ego and, and something that if you can park, it's not about your ego, it's actually just a genuine problem?
1: I think so. I mean, I'm not sure that I take criticism too well. I haven't been, I haven't had to suffer too much. I think it's very tough. I think you've got to separate the two. And the the classic example in the last few years of a person who I think is probably, I hope has successfully done it is Christine Holgate in that I think the person that was being attacked wasn't her as a person. It was her by nature of her role and the circumstances at the time and the fact that she was a political football. I'm hoping that she could Go home at night and say, Well, they weren't attacking me, Christine Holgate, wife, mother, you know, interested in reading books or, you know, going on wish walks. Christine Holgate, the head of Australia Post, who was at the wrong time, wrong place at the wrong time, was being attacked. But separating them is very hard. But that's how you separate your professional life from your personal life. The hardest part is when you really think you have made a mistake. And and you get attacked for it. I mean that must you know, that's that's I've only had it in minor senses, nothing like a big major public attack, but yes, very hard. But you've got to leave your ego at the door. I mean, I don't think your ego's But as you say, it's the one that's thing that propels you to. Well is it? Can be. What's your ego? What is that? The the desire to be uh successful? I'm not sure that's your ego. Your ego. What when you say that you've been driven by your ego? That's saying that you've been driven by saying, "I'm better than anybody else, and I can do a better job than anybody else." I don't know that that's very valid. You need to be driven by the fact that you're either you're either leading to make things better for the people that you're working for, not better. You're trying to manage an organisation for the betterment of the people that work there, and for the betterment of either society or whoever that your that your business is doing. I don't think you can hope to challenge and change the world on your own. That's an egotistical view. You can do what you can do. Mm. I think we could talk about egos for quite a while. There's quite a lot in that. Robbie Williams, apparently, when he's at home, he's either, I think he might be Rob, I think, or Robert. And he, I've heard him in an interview say that every day when he goes on stage, he's about to go on stage. And he is absolutely terrified that he might have to go on stage and Robbie won't turn up because he's created himself this separate being that exists outside of him to try and separate that. So the public persona is quite different to the private person. And that
0: gives him the confidence, but it also gives him the privacy. And yet... And protection. And protection. And yet... So many people sit in this studio and talk to me about leadership and say you have to bring your whole person to the table. And what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. It seems very
1: valid to keep a piece of you outside of your professional life. You have to bring a lot of, you do, in in many ways, you do have to bring the whole of yourself to the table in the sense that you have to bring your judgment, your, you know, your generosity, all of the facets of your personality and who you are but you have to also sometimes make tough decisions that have conversations which are tough, which you don't want to have. It's easier to do tough things and have tougher decisions and you be public about some of the things you do if you've slightly separated yourself from it.
0: One of the things I know about you is that you are one of the world's best-read people. You often give yourself the uh, challenge of reading a book a A week. A week. I don't quite know where to go with this question, but I'm going to start with: Have you ever read Brené Brown? No, hilarious. <laughs> Pretty much everyone who comes in here has. But see, I told you I don't think about I don't think about these things. So generally, I'm so. going to lend you my copy.
1: Okay.
0: I haven't read it either. <laughs> Good. If you're having a tough day, you're the leader of a organization. Um, there's pressure on you every day. What do you read for relaxation?
1: Yeah, uh,
0: I knew that was going to
1: stump it's you. It's a hard question. Um, At the moment and, you know, last year, a lot of crime. I read a lot of crime books. I read probably every Australian crime book that's been written in the last 10 years and that's because it's pure escapism. And how important is it to you to turn off and to
0: move away from work for a few hours?
1: Very, and it's hard because the nature of my work is that you're confronted with it the whole time and you can't do your job without actually knowing everything that's going on in the world. It doesn't mean that you have to listen to everything and watch everything that's happening, but everything we do is what's happening around us in the world. Grant Chapman, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe. Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.